Good? Yeah. Hello, Revolution. How are we doing? Um, Megan is going to seminary, so I will be taking over um, doing the announcements and greetings. Um, we will be doing communion today, so after the service, if you guys want to stick around, we'll be having some food and fellowship, so please stick around for that. Um, also, um, another announcement, be praying for um, Shawnee State students moving in up at school um, within the next few weeks. Um, hopefully we can draw in a good crowd for the school and um, be more involved with that. Um, yesterday, we had invasion. went pretty well. Um, I wasn't able to go, but I, from everything I heard, went pretty good. Um, for those of you that don't know, Tuesday nights at 6, we are doing um, trash pickup in the East End. So you guys can see Dowdy, Eric, um, Steve, if you don't know about that. And Friday nights um, around 5-ish, 5.30, we are doing cookout in the East End, same place. Um, try and uh, get the gospel spread, um, talk to those people, make relationships. Um, I think that's about it. So if you guys want to take just like 30 seconds to a minute and talk to someone around you um, that you haven't seen before, get to know them, that'd be good. So what's up, Revolution? Right on, right on. So you guys may not have realized that tonight is fight night here at Revolution, right? Rocky Balboa, that's why I was playing Survivor. I don't know how many of you guys caught that. There's a reason. Rocky's got nothing on what we're talking about tonight. It's like celebrity deathmatch, New Testament style. All right, I don't know if you guys, any of you guys my age stay up late enough. Your parents had no idea what you were watching on MTV. You get to watch like Marilyn Manson versus, yeah, you remember Claymation stuff? No, we don't have enough money to put that up here, so you're stuck with me. But uh, we're talking about James versus Paul tonight. All right, we're, we're in one of the most um, debated on texts in the New Testament. We're in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And, uh, and the question uh, goes something like this. You have you have. Paul in this corner, right, the man who wrote over half of the books in the New Testament, and he's saying you're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, and then in this corner, you have James, who says that you are shown to be righteous by your faith and your works, not just faith alone. So the question that we're trying to answer this evening, one of a couple of things we're doing is, which one is it? Is it faith alone or is it works? Because on the surface level, James and Paul seem like they don't get along, like they would contradict one another. And we know the Bible claims that it doesn't contradict. And if it does, we have a huge problem on our hands. Actually, so much weighs in the balance on this that the church split right down the middle in the 1500s. There's something called the Reformation. If any of you guys are kind of nerdy, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and the Reformation was this smart guy named Martin Luther started studying the Bible and he said, you know, I think that the Bible is teaching us that we're being saved by faith alone. And the Catholic Church said, no, you're being saved by baptism and then good works for the rest of your life. And Luther said, I don't think that's it. And he started his own section of Christianity that's called Protestantism and that's what we are here. If you're not Catholic in the U.S., you're probably Protestant. So he actually said that this view on how we're saved by faith or works, he said the church rises and falls on this. 
So this is huge. We really need to know where we come down on in this. Is it faith or works that save us? So like I said, we're in James 2, 14 through 26. If you want to flip there in your blue Bibles, you can. Or if you're lazy like me, it's going to be up here. Uh, if you're new here to Revolution, uh, you can take this Bible home with you. If you, don't, if you don't have a Bible that makes any sense, if you don't have a Bible that, that, uh, that reads very well, take that. It's a good translation. We just want you to read it. But uh, man, it is raining hard. Um, sorry, it's ADD. Uh, 2.14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So we we did this last week. I just wanted to give you guys the whole uh, passage in context. We did that last week, and we talked about faith has to produce action, or it's merely you just running your mouth. It's just a profession if there's nothing to back it up. right? You can say all that you want, but Jesus says if you're not producing good fruit, if you're not living a life of holiness, if you're not living a life doing social justice, if you're not living a life telling people about the good news of Jesus, then you're just merely professing faith and you have nothing to back it up. God is a God of action and we must be people of action as well if we have a new nature in Jesus. But moving on. 18. Now, James is really smart. James is expecting an argument to this. Faith, like faith without works is useless. He's expecting some kind of rebuttal. And he, he says, now someone may argue, verse 18, some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say... How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. So just consider James's logic on this. I thought this was super legit. All he's saying is something really obvious. How can you show me that you believe something? Without taking any kind of action, how do you show someone that you believe something? You can't show someone what's in your mind. You can't show something, something that's in your heart unless you're willing to act it out. So it's just right to the core. James doesn't beat around the bush. He says, but I can show you what I believe because I will live it out. And then 19, he expects even further rebuttal, right? So someone says, all right, so you say that I have to have uh, good deeds or my faith is useless. And he says, well, you say you have faith to that person that says that. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish, or, or another word for foolish is empty. How empty. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So he expects yet another rebuttal. He says, oh, so you say that you have faith in Jesus because you understand some theology. Yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin, but nothing in my life has changed. You've turned the Bible into a textbook. He says that's no better than demonic faith because the demons believe all that too. The problem is they don't submit and they aren't loyal to Jesus. And, and just to throw you a, Phoebe, uh, a freebie, this one kind of hit me really hard. Um, demonic faith, right? The I believe in my head, but I have no change in my life to show for it. Um, even that warrants action in demons. They tremble, right? Like they understand who God is and they know judgment's coming. And even that warrants some kind of an action within them. So all genuine faith produces some kind of action, whether it's obedience or complete fear like a demon would have of God. Genuine faith must produce action of some kind. 
And then he gives an example of faith and actions working together. He starts, he talks about Abraham and Rahab, but he talks about Abraham first. He says, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Right, so I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Abraham. Real quick, you guys know original gangsters, OGs. Abraham's an OJ. He's an original Jew. He's the first one. No, yeah, yeah, you got that? Yeah, thank you. Uh, he, okay, Jesus actually comes out of Abraham's lineage. God promised Abraham after he calls him and he says, you know, you're going to be my people. I want you to trust me. Abraham, trust God. And he says, I'm going to make a great nation come out of you. But in order to have a great nation come out of Abraham, he has to have children. Long story short, Sarah, his wife, can't have kids, but God promises him a son. Boom. Some people say around 25 years later, after God promises him a kid, he and Sarah are very old. And he finally gets a son, and he gets a son, Isaac. And Isaac is loved. His dad is crazy about this kid. All right, and, and God promised Abraham that through Isaac, this great nation was going to come. And then he turns around and tells Abraham, now I need you to sacrifice your son. I need you to put your son on the altar and sacrifice him to me. So this son that you've waited for, that I've promised that this great nation is going to come out of, I need you to trust me. I need you to sacrifice him. And Abraham, uh, later in the Bible, we see that Abraham knows that, that God is either going to raise Isaac from the dead or God's going to stop him from killing him or something is going to happen to keep Isaac, to keep God's promise because Abraham believed and trusted in God and he said, I'm going to act in faith even though this doesn't make sense right now, but I believe you're good. I believe you're just. I believe that you're going to keep your promise. So in faith, I'm going to produce action that backs up my faith. And as the story goes, Abraham's getting ready to sacrifice his son. An angel of the Lord stops him from doing it. Some people argue that's Jesus saying, no, you're not going to do that. There's only one human being that's going to have to die for sin and that's going to be me eventually. Um, That's open to debate. But either way, it's a test of obedience and Abraham backed up his claim to faith with his action. And in light of that, James says in verse 22, you see his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. Right, to make his faith complete, he's saying his actions reinforced his beliefs. Faith should drive you to action, and then action reinforces faith, which drives you to more action. It's like a bicycle, right foot, left foot. They keep going. You can't divorce the two. You have one, you have the other. You have one, you have the other. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. And then he gives another example. He says, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Now, Rahab was a hooker. All right, Rahab was a prostitute in this city in Jericho, and you can go to the book of Joshua and you can check that out. Um, long story short, she, is, she lives in like a citadel. She lives in a soldier city. There's not really any families. And she's a prostitute, so she's making good money. Right, one would, that stands the reason, a prostitute in a city full of soldiers, making good money. She's not worshiping the, the God of Israel, the one true God. She's Gentile. She's not Jewish. She's living life her way, but she's heard of this God of Israel. She's heard of their people. Well, the Israelites send in some spies to Jericho to scope the place out, and while they're there, they come across Rahab, and she says, wait, I've heard of you guys. You guys are Israelites, but more importantly, I've heard of your God. And your God's done some like crazy, awesome, mighty things. And surely he must be the God of heaven and of earth. He must be the God of everything. So now what, like, what do I need to do? Like, what can I do to help? I believe. 
So she makes a claim to faith, and then she helps these spies. She hides them and sends them out. And in helping them, she helps the Israelites take the city she lives in down. You've got to think it through a little bit. Prostitution's illegal in Israel. Her livelihood is gone now because she came to faith and helped the men of God take over her city. She lost all of her money. She lost her business. She, she betrayed her country. She gave up everything that she had ever been taught, gave up all of her old religion, all of her old mentality because she came to faith. She was willing to give up everything. So just like Abraham, who was willing to give up his son, she was willing to give up everything she had worked for in her life up to this point because her faith required it of her. So that's why James can say, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Every person in the Old Testament, every person in the New Testament we see that comes to faith has action to back up their claim to faith in the one true God. So now that we have all of this lined up, when we've looked at all this, the question now is James versus Paul. All right, back to the original thing. So now you guys understand you have to have works along with your faith or it's bull. Now, there's a, like I said, there's a lot of debate because James says... Uh, We are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. But then Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Romans 3, 28 also says you're saved apart from your obedience to the law. All right? You're not saved by your works of the law, but you're saved by your faith. So it seems like Paul... And James would have like gotten a fist fight, right? Like it seems like faith or works. It, it doesn't seem like they would have gotten along. So which is it? Faith or works that justifies us, that makes us right before God. Let's define our terms. I'm real big on this. Um, faith. The Greek word for faith, don't know how to pronounce it, but here we go. Um, it, has, it has three ideas behind one word. All right, and all throughout the New Testament, whenever you see the word faith, it is the same word over and over again, whether it's used by Jesus, Paul, James, John, Jude, whoever. They all use the same word for faith. And behind it, the three things is one, belief. Like a mental assent. Like, yes, I believe that is true. Like, I believe gravity is true. That is part of faith. That's like the first layer. So you have to believe it's true. The second thing is you have to trust it. Right? Like, no matter what happens, I, I trust that this is true. Like, so for us being Christians, step one, I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin and rose from the dead three days later to save me and pay what I owed to God for what I've done. Step two is I trust that. I trust it's true. I trust this Jesus that loved me enough to die for me, so I'm going to trust him no matter what happens because he has my best interest at heart because he saved me from myself. He saved me from my own damnation. He saved me when I could not save myself. And then the third facet of faith. So you have belief, trust, and loyalty. Loyalty. I will obey God no matter what. This God that I trust in, that he has my best interest, this God that I believe did all this for me, as a result, I love him, and out of gratitude, I will be loyal until the day I stop breathing. To be faithful, consider that. That hit me just now. Faithfulness, to be loyal to. So if that's what faith is, then what are works? Works is a lot easier. It's, it's doing the things that God commands his people to do. 
right? Like holiness, right? Like, uh, like you know, God tells us to be abstinent before we're married. And, you know, I always say that. It's always the first thing I say when I'm talking about holiness. I think it's a Freudian slip because I am sick of being celibate and I'm ready to get married. You got to get an amen from any single guys out there? Yeah, you married men have no idea what you got going for you right now. Love your wives. For those of us that can't. Not your wives, but our future wives. Yeah. So, but like holiness, right? So holiness, like, like being abstinent before you're married or not being given over to, to drunkenness or being a, a person of reconciliation or, or being a, an agent of peace, being a peacemaker, um, telling people the gospel, doing social justice, right? Those are works. Those are being obedient to God's commands over our lives as people of God. So which is it? Which one's going to justify us before God? Which one is going to show us to be right before God? Our faith in Jesus or our obedience? Now, I don't think, I think we're asking the wrong question. I don't think it's who is right, Paul or James. I think it's when is each one of them right? So hear me on this. James and Paul, I thought this was really cool when I was studying this. Uh, I'm a little bit of a nerd, so hear me out. James and Paul, not only are they like theological powerhouses, they're also pastors, right? So Paul and James are writing to different groups of people at different times that need different kind of instruction because some of them understand certain things that other ones don't. Some of them need correction in this area while others need correction in this area. So go with me on this. Paul is is the apostle to the Gentiles, right? To the non-Jews, the people who don't know scripture, the people who have never heard of the God of the Bible before. These people don't understand salvation. They don't understand what Jesus has done for them. They don't understand how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. They don't understand that Jesus was perfect where they couldn't be. So these people are thinking, oh, well, this God's like our God. Or this God is like our gods. We need to be good and appease them, and then they'll love us. And and Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You can't be good enough to make this God love you because you're already a sinner. He loves you just because he loves you has nothing to do with how well you can obey him. So Paul, whenever he says you're saved by faith alone, he's talking pre-conversion. He's talking about a viewpoint of a pre-conversion viewpoint. This is before you come to faith. This is how you get into relationship with God, through faith alone, in grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Whereas James is talking to Jewish Christians who have had scripture their whole life who have had the Old Testament, who understand how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, who are very theological, right? Like, we believe there's one God. Like, we understand the Trinity. We understand all of this theology. And they rely so much on the fact that we're saved by faith alone that they become lazy. And I, and I honestly, I think that that's, that's a, a backlash against their former Judaism. Right, Because they grew up in this religion where you have to obey for God to accept you. And then they find out, well, Jesus was obedient for me, so that means I don't have to try anymore. So I think that like their laziness is backlash against their former religion. Which I can relate to personally because I grew up in a really legalist environment where I thought that I, I had to be a good little boy in order to go to heaven. Um, and any time I messed up, that God was dangling me over hell with a shoestring. And any time I messed up, he, he cut it. I actually remember having a conversation with a guy when I was like 12 or 13, and I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, he, he said this to me. He, I said, man, this is too hard. I feel like I can't, I mess up every day. I sin every single day. And this dude looks at me, he goes, I don't think Christians sin every day. I don't sin every day. 
And I wish I, I wish I knew what I knew now because I'd have been like, oh, really? Because you just lied. So, I mean, there goes that. You know what I mean? Like, boom. That's, I, I, that's what I grew up. So I understand this backlash because whenever I first came to, uh, to understand the gospel of grace, right, that Jesus was perfect for me, that I can't obey the law perfectly, that I can't follow God perfectly, but that Jesus did it for me, I became incredibly lazy for a couple of years. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't get involved with anything because it was all about faith, man. Just like the people James is writing to. So, to sum it all up, I know I spent a long time, got a little deep. To sum it all up, Paul is writing to say, faith alone is how you get into relationship with Jesus. Paul is saying, or James is saying, this is what a valid relationship with Jesus looks like. So that's that. So, if faith gets us into relationship with God, and not works then why is James so hard on getting us to do good works? Well, like I preached on last week, we're supposed to emulate a God of action, right? His nature is good. His nature is, is to act and do good deeds, right? Because he is the embodiment of good. And if we've received a new nature through Jesus, we seek to do the same things. Another thing is true faith submits to God, right? The third aspect of faith is loyalty. That's actually the big difference between demonic faith and true saving faith, right? Satan understands all this kinds of theology, but he refuses to submit. That's his problem. But that, those, are, those are a couple of reasons why we must do good works. But, but remember, James is a pastor, so why is he so adamant? Why does he hammer this for like two straight chapters? Why have I been repeating myself for six weeks and I probably sound like a broken record and I'm getting on half of your nerves week in and week out saying, do good, get up and go, do something for the kingdom, Now, I've not been a pastor for very long, but I know James was a really good one. So, I don't know a whole lot, but I know a little bit. And I think that James, like any good pastor, wants one thing. He wants the good news of Jesus Christ spread to as many people as possible. And that's why he is harping over and over and over again on faith without action is dead. That you have to have action to accompany your proclamation of faith. So, go with me on this. James's time, just like ours today, there was thousands of philosophies, thousands of religions, thousands of different beliefs about God. And everyone's shouting over top of one another, you know, you should believe this, believe this. God's like this. God's like that. This is what the afterlife is like. No, this is what the afterlife is like. If you want to be saved, you have to do this. If you want to be saved, you should go do this. And there's all this noise. And James knew something that we don't. That's if you want to cut through the noise like a knife, there's one way to do it, and that is action. In a world where there is nothing but words, James says if you move in faith and do something to help people and do something selfless and love people, they'll look at you and say, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? And they'll want to know why. And they'll want to know who this God is that you serve. James knew that. If you want to cut to the heart, act. If you want to cut through all of the noise, love people and love God. That's what's going to spark questions. That's what's going to make people want to know, who is this Jesus? Because you shouldn't have bought me groceries. I've spent all my money on dope. There's no reason that you should have helped me. You don't know me. There's no reason you should have stopped and helped me get my car running. You don't know me. There's no reason you should have paid for my dinner in this restaurant we were both at. Why would you do something like that? 
James knew that that is what would get people interested, that that is what would get people to want to know who Jesus is. Because they say that, you know, why are you doing that? And you, and you have an opportunity to share the gospel. Well, you know, God was gracious with me, so I'm being gracious with you. I wasn't helping myself, and God saved me, so I'm going to be that kind of gracious and loving to you now. But, in order to share the gospel with people and do these kind of good works, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm right there with you guys, for real. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Um, like East End Ministry, straight up sucks sometimes. I'm just being totally real with you guys for a minute here. It's super uncomfortable. Like you go up to a guy and you're like, hey man, what's up? And he's like, nah, not too much, man. My girlfriend got uh, stabbed yesterday and there's like a werewolf in the backyard. But other than that, I'm good. And you're like, my name's Dave, man. Really nice to meet you, brother. Like you have no idea, like literally like gibberish, stuff like that. It can get really uncomfortable. Like people are nuts. If you don't believe me, please, please come to a cookout. I, seriously, it, it's funny, if nothing else. Once in a while. Not everyone's like that, but it gets really uncomfortable. Um, you know, some people you meet are really hostile towards the faith for one reason or another. You know, they, they want you out of their area. They don't want you to talk to them. And that makes things really awkward, you know, because if you're a wuss like me, like you really don't feel like getting beat up today. People are super hostile sometimes, and it makes things awkward. On top of that... You know, some people are really skeptical because one of these merely professing, claiming to be Christian people has done something completely contradictory to the Bible and hurt them. So they're really skeptical of you as soon as they know that you bear the name Christian. So things can get really uncomfortable just for the sake that you're, you're just for the fact that you're going around people that you don't know, that don't look like you, that don't talk like you, that don't dress like you, whatever. It can get uncomfortable. I get it. I really do. I, I, I'm, I'm vibing with you on that. And another reason that they can be super uncomfortable, consider this. The gospel is offensive. The good news of Jesus Christ is offensive. That's why Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended by me. Right? In order to tell someone how much Jesus loves them, you have to look them dead in the face and say, you're a sinner that deserves to go to hell because you've committed crimes against God. That is uncomfortable. And I'm right there with you. And every time, and I mean this, I've been doing this for a while now, every time that I go to try to tell someone the gospel or anything like that, I get uncomfortable. So it's, some days it's easier to push off than others, but I'm right there with you. I understand the uncomfortableness. I understand, you know, your coworkers there and you've known them for a long time. And you don't want to make things weird between you and them. I get it. You got to fight through it and it gets easier to push that awkwardness away. But it is uncomfortable. You know, showing love to people that we, we don't know is uncomfortable. You know, but we, and here's the problem for us. We live in a nation where our biggest false god is comfort. It's, it's one of the biggest idols in the United States. You know, it's why people have huge houses while their neighbors can't pay their bills. It's why we have more food in our fridge than we could eat in two months, and there are people starving in other parts of our county. You know, comfort, having more, having a huge bank account while there are like wells that need dug in Africa. You know, I mean, th things like that. We're all about comfort. But Jesus' message is radically against that. He calls us out of our comfort zones. He calls us to give, to, to step out in faith like Abraham and Rahab. This is going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you to do something that seems like it makes no sense. But do you have faith in me or not? Do you trust me or not? Are you going to do it or not? Are you going to be loyal to me? Are you going to obey my commands or not? But ultimately, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he's not done himself. 
right? Like Jesus became the ultimate uncomfortable for us. He looked down from heaven and saw that we were sinners. He looked down from heaven and he saw that we had sinned against God, that we had, God had told us to live a certain way and we had told him, you know, I'm gonna do things my way. I think in my heart of hearts that I know better than you and I'm gonna live my life as if you don't exist and I'm gonna do things my way because I know what's best for me. And in doing that, we've committed the most awful crime in the universe and now we deserve hell. Jesus saw that. but in mercy, wanting to save us, because that's justice, right? And justice must be served. Someone must pay for what we've done. Jesus in mercy says, I don't want them to pay for it. So he pours himself out in heaven. Talk about uncomfortable. He is in glory in heaven. He is in perfect communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is loving them. They are loving him. He is being worshiped day and night. He is in all of his splendor in his throne room. And he pours himself out of heaven to enter human history and become a poor Jewish carpenter. And to ultimately grow up to be accused of crimes he didn't commit, hated, abused, mocked, And throughout his whole life, he was sinless. He loved the outcast. He fed the poor. He healed the sick. He told people the good news that he, had, he was coming to fix things for them. He inconvenienced himself for people. He went out of his comfort zones to help people that he didn't know, but he loved them because he loved his father. And after living this sinless life of inconvenience and total obedience to God, he says, well, justice must be done for these sinful people. So I'm going to go pay their justice on the cross. And on the cross, he says, God, I'm here to become sin for them, to take their sin on themselves and pay the justice that that they are owed, the punishment that that they deserve. And he goes to the cross. And God pours out all of his wrath and judgment for sin on Jesus. And Jesus dies in our place as a substitute. And then three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that Jesus' sacrifice was good. And that Jesus' sacrifice was enough to cover what we have done. And now if we place our faith in Jesus, it's paid for. That Jesus stands between us and God as an advocate. Whenever we die and says, I paid for everything that he did. I paid for everything that she did. Every mistake she ever made in the past, every mistake that she ever made after coming to faith in me, I paid for it. She owes you nothing. That's the good news. That's, that's a God who became uncomfortable for us. That's why our God is unlike any other God. No one else is going to be, I wouldn't have done that for me. You wouldn't have done that for me. So there's a response to this. If any, if any of you here uh, haven't placed your faith in Jesus, the Bible says to believe that gospel message, that good news that Jesus died in your place for your sin and begin following him. There's no prayer that I can tell you to say. It says believe and begin to follow Jesus. So if you want to know more about what that means, you want someone to pray with you, you can come see me after the service or you can talk to Brady and Megan over here by the couch during worship. I would love that. But make no mistake, there is a response. Um, and there's, there's only two options. Someone will pay for sin when you die. Either you will or Jesus will. But sin will be paid for. Make no mistake. But Christians, right, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, go and serve 
Go imitate Jesus. Faith without works is dead. You want to share the gospel with people? And I hope you do. Or you know, if you don't have that kind of desire, I'd ask myself, you know, am I really a Christian? Because that should just be welling up in you. If you want to do that, you have to show people you love them. You have to do what Jesus did. Right? He didn't just go around telling people the good news. He went around helping people as well. We have to be motivated to do that. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable. So I'm asking you, because Jesus asks you to, inconvenience yourself for the good of the kingdom of God. You might be tired. You might not want to go do something. You might not want to go pick up trash. You may not want to go to invasion yesterday. But inconvenience yourself for the sake of the gospel. That's the whole reason that we do anything, so we can tell people about Jesus. And I've said it before, don't do it because I ask you to. Do it to bring God glory. Jesus says, do good works so that whenever men see you do them, you can point right back to God and say, he is the whole reason that I'm doing this. That's the only reason that I'm doing anything good. is because of him, because I want him to be worshipped, not me. So go and serve. Go and be uncomfortable. Go and be inconvenienced. And remember the whole time that Jesus did the ultimate discomfort. He poured himself out of heaven and died on our behalf. And because of that, out of gratitude, we should be willing to do the exact same for him. We should be willing to step outside of our comfort zones and imitate our king. Because if he is our king, if we call Jesus Lord, then that means he is our Lord. Jesus can't just be your savior. He has to be your Lord and savior. He can't be one or the other. He must be both. And like, a, like if you're a good subject to a king, if he commands you to do something, you do what the king says. You do what the Lord says. So go and serve because you love him, because he is your king. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for the cross for the fact that you were you were willing to be uncomfortable for our sake that, that while we were still sinners you came and died for us in spite of us um, you know father I, I thank you for the fact that we are saved by faith um, and not our obedience to the law but God thank you for not only saving us, Uh, from damnation, but actually saving us to do good deeds. God, I I just pray that that we use this this gospel message to to bring about gratitude in us that makes us want to go out and serve people the way your son did. Let that just be at the forefront of our minds every day. Let Let our faith be made real, be made complete like Abraham and Rahab's by our action. Help us to to be uncomfortable like your son was willing to be uncomfortable. But above everything, just thank you again for for dying in our place for our sin, God. We're going to worship you now because you're worth our inconvenience. You're you're worth our effort. You're worth our awkwardness. You're worth our uncomfortability. You're worth everything, God. So we're going to worship you. In Jesus' name.